Olá pessoal, tudo bem? Welcome to the Brazil Crypto Report podcast, where we talk to the builders, entrepreneurs, and influencers from across the Brazil crypto ecosystem. Today I'm joined by Mauricio Magaudi, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at 11FS, and he's host of the Blockchain Insider podcast. He's a content creation machine, and he's one of the most influential Brazilians in the crypto ecosystem right now, so it's an honor to have him. We're going to be chatting a bit about some of the recent news out of the industry, current state of his uh, emerging multimedia empire and what he's been up to and uh yeah it's great to have you on the show Mauricio thank you uh thanks for joining it's an absolute pleasure to be back in the show video version uh this time so yeah happy to chat about the ongoing nightmare that is being in crypto these days <laughs> <laughs> well look I mean I mean some of the news hasn't been great but I think like it's kind of like that meme where it would like the dog in the fire and he's like, Oh, this feels fine. You know, like it's like all the it's news been is worse. bad, but yeah, it's yeah, worse like, for sure. I mean, the market's doing okay. Prices are doing okay. Like it kind of feels like we've bottomed out as far as, as far as prices go. Um, it almost kind of feels like, you know, if we can just tolerate a couple more months of pain here, we might be out of this. Um, anyway, that's my first, my, you know, sort of glass half full perspective on things, but um, well, let's, we'll dive into that, I guess. But like, for, before we dive in, like, let's, let's talk about what you've been up to the last uh, few months. I mean, last time we spoke, you had just moved to London and taken this new uh, gig with, with 11FS, hosting a new podcast, going mainstream, as they say, and uh, a lot's happened since then. So tell us what you've been up to. Yeah. I mean, 11FS is kind of grown up gig. Uh, as far as podcasting is concerned, we do have an amazing production crew that does everything from audio to video to the graphics and the production and everything. So I, I feel very fortunate to be involved with Blockchain Insider, um, having the opportunity to speak with uh, really great people from all over the world. Um, I do have the privilege to have Kai Sheffield from Visa as my co-host. He's the head of crypto there. So we share a lot of the same perspectives. We differ in like timings and angles because it's only natural, but it's a great chat and a great pal to have uh, to share the, the spotlight with. So super fortunate. On the business end of things, um, what I do at 11FS is I help incumbents, be it fintechs, banks, and regulators understand the power of blockchain uh, for their own sake and how to make that into a much more efficient, transparent, natively, truly digital financial services. And we've been advising banks from and, and, and financial services companies and regulators um, in the UK, in Africa, in the Middle East, Asia, the North America. So yeah, it's been I've been really excited about the opportunity. The fact that we are in this kind of down market crypto winter uh, to these incumbents mean only one thing. It's cheaper to enter now. Because once a bull run starts, then even talent becomes much more unaffordable. So um, the incumbents have been building strong teams in this crypto winter that I feel will position them in a much better place to actually benefit from the next bull run when it comes to digital assets. So yeah, we can go into that a little bit more, but that's uh, that what I've been uh, up to uh, through 11FS. Uh, I still uh, do some uh, smaller advisory. I participate on board of advisors for startups, uh, mostly out of Brazil, where I help them understand market conditions, um, frame the business architecture, 
uh, tap into my own network, which is, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to have a, a massive network of people that can help each other. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, all the fun. <laughs> Thank you for that background there. Um, and so with your work with Love and FS, I mean, it's really interesting. It seems like you have kind of a nice behind the scenes view into what a lot of these incumbents are are like the approach that they're taking and what they're doing in this kind of winter season, even though despite the the headlines and whatnot. And it, I realize that this is one of these things that crypto people love to just say like repetitively all the time that like, oh, the institutions are coming. And, and you know, <laughs> and it's and it's one sometimes it's one of these things you just it's sort of like copium, right? Like you just say this because like, well, the price is terrible, but at least the institutions are coming, right? And you know, here's some press release of some bank doing something. That's the proof that we need. But it sounds like from your, um, you, you know, your vantage point, you have much more of like an insider look into the kind of nuts and bolts of, of, of like, you know, what some of these incumbents are actually thinking and what, what, the, what questions they're asking, and particularly how this maybe differs from what the approach that they were taking uh, in the previous bear market, like kind of the 2018, 19 years, uh, even into 2020, when. You know, I think a lot, a lot of that, I think we talked about this bit on our last podcast, but like a lot of that was sort of like, there's a lot of enterprise blockchain stuff and you had a lot of stuff that was just sort of, um, I guess I would call it kind of like innovation lab theater, you know, where it's, it's like, Hey, like we're experimenting with blockchain, but it's, it's just sort of like in the basement with these computer guys that like, you know, yeah. <laughs> like you don't really have any influence over anything. Right. <laughs> but it seems like from what you're, what you're talking about, like, like the technology is taking a bit more of like a, it's, it's kind of like ascending the hierarchy inside these institutions. It's not just sort of the computer nerds in the basement that play around 100%. Stuff, but it's like, it's yeah. like, it's kind of rising up to the, to the senior levels here. Absolutely. And, and one of the, I think there's a couple of things that happened last year that kind of prove that trying to uh, rewire a whole industry with enterprise blockchain is impossible, or at least really, really hard. Uh, with the demise of three, four major projects uh, based on enterprise blockchain, private permission technology that flopped after, you know, two, three, four years trying to prove itself. And then they just went belly up, um, lack of funding, lack of adoption, lack of an, an actual sustainable business model for the network. Um, and I, I actually uh, shot a, a React video um, for 11FS uh, addressing all of these points. But in a nutshell, it's if you have a enterprise rate to play, meaning you have to carry the infrastructure as you enter the market, it's really hard to become sustainable, which blockchains that are public have solved already. Anyone can have a computer doing proof of stake and you know withholding the infrastructure for the rest of the community to use. Um, in enterprise, you have to pay enterprise ticket to enter, and that is obviously not where the scale is right now. So it's really detrimental to those projects and most of them didn't go through because they couldn't afford a new round of funding which means that after three years they were not sustainable right so that is kind of the manifestation of those projects i think and i i'm seeing still enterprise blockchain being used at a very niche level across sections of a supply chain in which the major player funds the infrastructure and also reaps all of the benefit from uh, efficiencies on that section of the supply chain. So I still think enterprise blockchain has a space to play in these kind of niche sub-segments of supply chains, but not across industries. I think if we are to see in whole industries being transformed, it will be through the uh, path of public uh, blockchain, even if 
uh, in an enterprise setting like uh, ZK proofs for privacy uh, or, you know, Nightfall style privacy layers uh, on top of the, the protocol because privacy is still something that is imperative for uh, enterprise use of the technology. Um, but yeah, that's, I think, one thing that we saw last year. We, we're also seeing from uh, the financial services industry, which is where what I cover mostly, is the tokenization taking place. Um, they've identified that tokenizing assets um, in general give them more liquidity, um, give them more efficiencies, remove bottlenecks from processing. So it's really interesting to see that there is a large number of tokenization proje projects coming out from incumbents um, this time. Um, we're also seeing more interest in trading specifically. So there is a lot of crypto as a services um, companies coming out from re really like underground crypto to mainstream by offering uh, regulated ways for a bank to offer cryptocurrency trading for their customers. Uh, we saw that in Brazil with uh, Nubank and, and XP, and we're seeing the tokenization, say Itaú is doing tokenization as well, and uh, has announced that they will do digital assets custody uh, late this year. So banks that understand uh, financial services infrastructure are starting to participate in that space uh, for their own use or for their own benefit. And let's, let's can we double click on the asset yeah. tokenization piece? Because I feel like this is this is one of these areas that I, I think is going to be a really hot one for 2023, but it doesn't really get yeah. like it doesn't quite get it's not like quite the sexiest you know issue to be talking about, I guess, in partly because it's it's kind of tied to like the security token you know, fad of like 2018 when everyone was going around shilling security tokens and that kind of all like died off or at least the hype around it did not the actual, yeah. you know, concept, but, but like with asset tokenization, it, this seems like, especially this is a good, really, really good bridge to Brazil as well, because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Brazil with asset yeah. tokenization projects that, you know, it, it just feels like there's some really unique use cases that are being developed here, uh, whether it's you know, tokenized carbon credits or whether it's, tokenizing you know like football club tokens that 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 offer sort of like basically like royalties anytime like yep. a, a player gets sold you know a lot of and even Roberto Campos Neto at the Banco Central has been been talking about this a lot basically like everything that has value every asset that's of value is going to be tokenized and live on a, a blockchain at some point in the future maybe talk about like what are you kind of seeing on the asset tokenization front from your vantage point and um you know how do you see kind of maybe like the Brazilian uh, like ecosystem in this regard, stacking up against, yeah, um, you know, some of these uh, maybe what you're seeing in the UK or US or elsewhere. So I, I think Brazil is showing big promise on the real estate tokenization for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the whole industry is now enabled by the the regulation to actually record property on blockchain. This came out last year, so that's one change that kind of triggers everything else. Then there's at least five uh, big-time startups that are doing real estate tokenization in Brazil for a number of reasons. One is actually allowing a lower point of entry for real estate investors. Because in Brazil, if you're going to invest in real estate, it's either for your own use or for renting, right? And you have to manage the whole asset life cycle. And it's costly and it takes time. And if you're not doing that on a professional basis, you're probably not doing that right. 
now we have startups that are actually tokenizing those assets, putting them out to rent, and then you get a cut of the rent if you buy the NFT that's fractionalizing that ownership. And they manage the whole cycle. They have custody of the documentation. They are liable to you as an investor to manage all those tokens on your behalf and in the contracts, the underlying underlying contracts. So it creates an easier experience for the investor. It brings more investors into this real estate space because now you have more fractions that you can actually invest on because it's a cheaper point of entry and it creates a whole new secondary market. So if like the rents are not coming and you need the money from your token, you just pass it on a secondary market and get rid of that. Uh, the next the next time a rent is paid, it goes to the new owner. It doesn't go to you, but you get the upside uh, from selling that NFT out. So I think real estate in Brazil is going to open up the possibility for investors at a lower ticket to participate in the real estate market, especially in the corporate real estate, which is really hard to get into because of the ticket size. So that is one phenomenon that I'm seeing in Brazil that, again, enabled by regulation, but also enabled by technology to get that going. You mentioned the football, the soccer clubs uh, doing that with the rights to a player. As the player grows into their careers, they get rewarded by having invested early on in that player career, which is an interesting model as well. I think that's so rare. company that's invested by Venus Williams is also doing something similar in the US for early stage uh, tennis players. We're seeing banks entering, like we mentioned Itaú here as well. Bradesco did the tokenization, I think, of a one of his bonds, one of their bonds uh, on uh, Bolsa OTC. Uh, Bolsa OTC is doing the uh, lift challenge at the Banco Central. So all of that's happening. And I think this is just a testimony to the appetite that Brazilians have to endeavor into new technology, right? Brazilians are probably the largest contingents on Facebook. We were the biggest Arcut community when Arcut was a thing. So we actually like technology for many reasons. Gossip maybe being one of them, but <laughs> with 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 that type of tokenization, I, I feel we're going to start to see one of the promises of crypto to actually come forward, which is the democratization of access to finance. And, and tokenization is actually helping that to happen in some shape or form. I think there's still a little bit of lack of clarity in terms of the regulation and having like a level playing field, which I feel is coming based on the discussions of uh, what's going on with the market. And I don't think that now we're having that kind of first mover advantage because, and it's not just because of Brazil, it's because crypto has yet to solve the UX challenge as a whole. And that's still true for tokenization. So I think we will be seeing more activity uh, like that coming out of Brazil and other countries that are focusing on tokenizing uh, assets and bringing them on chain. And I'm hoping, as, as, as you mentioned, that we'll see everything that has value that can be fractionalized and create a new investment experience or create a new ownership experience to becoming gradually on chain. Uh, and as we fix the ability to actually hold those assets in a better user experience, then everything else makes more sense, both for the user side of things and for whoever is issuing the asset on chain. 
Yeah, it's super interesting. I think with, with asset tokenization, it's funny, I was, I was at a, a baby shower party over the weekend and I was trying to explain this to somebody in Portuguese. I mean, it's hard enough to explain in your own language, much less a second language. Uh, I was trying to explain to this guy, like, because he worked at like Banco do Brasil and he was, but he didn't really know that much about like crypto. He kind of knew the, he knew sort of the basics. So it's trying to explain to him the whole idea of asset tokenization and that a lot of the banks are playing around with this, that there's all these interesting use cases around like the carbon credits or the, or the, the football clubs or, or like real estate. And I, I think for a lot of these folks, like they still don't like quite get it. Like, why can't I just do all that stuff like regularly, like without a blockchain? Like, why would I like tokenizing real estate? Like that already kind of exists in the form of like a timeshare or just like regular, you know, crowdfunding investment platforms. Right. I was trying to explain to him that like, look, like you have, basically you have like new opportunities that didn't exist before. Right. As far as, you know, opening up some like commercial real estate, being able to invest in these things, um, you know, at a kind of a retail investor level, these are things that even in the U S are just starting to come into existence through yeah. things like fund rise or other types of things. But even with that, you still need a minimum investment of like, you know, like $5,000 or something to like buy in. Right. Which is, I mean, yeah. it's doable, but well, it's not, it's still like a decent amount of money. But that's Sorry, the whole but... thing about the regulation being an enabler, right? If you have a ticket that says like you can only invest in real estate if you own more than a million reais, it's never going to be democratized. But if you can buy an NFT for 50 bucks and get paid like, you know, uh, one single real every month, that is already a return on something that you can actually afford to potentially lose because investments are risky all in all. The thing about the tokenization is that because the process is so much more efficient, instead of having to build a fund and register everything and have like 12, 15 intermediaries until you get that, you know, the, the, the shares out, with the tokenization, if you own the asset as a tokenization firm or you have legal custody of that asset, you can actually put that on chain with a much smaller effort and a much smaller cost. So the upsides are much more democratized than just having to do that on a traditional paper-based um, securitization structure. So the overall proposition is that, yeah, it's nothing new because you know there are devices in the law that allow you to fractionalize an asset, but the means in which this is getting distributed and, and, and put into custody are so much more efficient and, so, and, and therefore, they can afford to distribute at a much lower ticket as well, right? So I think that is yeah. the overall purpose. And, and, and again, the way blockchain transform industries in terms of efficiencies are, are, have, have not been tapped yet. And tokenization is one of the use cases that will allow multiple industries to actually go and actually do that. With, a, with an industry like real estate, which is it's a great example just because there's so many intermediaries like even in the u.s which is you know i think probably like much less you know bureaucratic on this stuff than in brazil like even in the u.s it's still like there's all these different people you have to go through all these different intermediaries involved and you know you know title insurance and all these kind of things and in brazil it seems like the process is even more inefficient just the efficiency gains alone like pretty compelling the question that i think a lot of people still have is like aside from just shaving maybe three to 5% off uh, of my like kind of bureaucracy costs, essentially, what's the benefit of this, right? And I think your point about like the access and kind of the democratization, 
and that the fact that this is now available to non or it can be available to not just like qualified accredited investors, but can be available to anybody. It actually, it does expand the pool of capital available to invest in these things for one, because look, like these retail investors, like these people, they want like stuff to invest in, right? Why do you think people are going and buying all these like NFT profile pictures Mm -hmm. that have no value and they're dumping, you know, thousands of dollars on these things when I'm sure they would much rather go buy an, uh, you know, a token representing condominium in, in, in Porto Alegre or something, right? Like, yeah. like oh, that, that's oh. going to have at least some tangible, like, you know, cash that's, flow involved, right? Absolutely. And, and, and what is most compelling to me, uh, other than turning things more accessible, is the fact that once these assets are on the blockchain, they become immediately composable. And by that, I mean, I can now program things that operate around existing assets for other more complex existing or non-existing, completely new uh, financial instruments. So if I have a, a share on multiple assets that are real estate assets that pay me a rent every month or every three months and I need the cash, well, I, don't, I, I can go and sell them on a secondary for sure, but I can also go and maybe take a loan and put those assets as collateral. And because they right. generate the rent yield, the collateral now can actually pay for the loan. Right. Right. So, so I could go put my I could put my token, my, my tokenized condominium assets into a maker vault, for example. Yeah. Uh, take out a loan and die. And then I could use those funds to uh, to pay to, out the to, loan. You know, pay off the loan or I could use it to go, you know, I could basically use it as leverage essentially to yep. go purchase more. And then, yep. you know, I mean, obviously you have the risk of getting liquidated and all that kind of stuff, but uh, like yeah. you have with any asset, but, but it's a, yeah, it's, it's a great, you know, liquidity unlocking mechanism potentially when you can unlock, um, you know, these types of, these types of assets have generally been a liquid, right? Whereas yeah. like, yeah, if you have an entire house that's worth, $300,000. Yeah. You could take a, like a home equity loan against that. Um, and you could use that to go purchase like your second home or a rental home or something else or, or a boat. If you, you don't care, you just want to, you know, we've seen that spend everybody reckless. So, yeah. <laughs> we've seen um, that. <laughs> I'm, waiting, I'm waiting until the boat market totally, uh, you know, uh, forecloses, uh, and, and, you know, hopefully I can get a boat on the cheap here with, uh, but, <laughs> but it's like, but Hey, but if I have, you know, but say if I don't have a $300, $300,000 house, but I do have, you know, I have maybe $30,000 worth of Porto Allegri condominium tokens. Um, you know, I could put those up in, in, in a maker vault, potentially. And then I could, you know, assuming it's like, you know, 150% collateral ratio, like I could take out, you know, $15,000 worth of, of die tokens, for example, against the value of that house, of that, of that condominium. And then I could use that for... Uh, to purchase more, or I could, you know, do it for living expenses or for whatever operating expenses. Um, and that's something that doesn't, that's something that doesn't exist today, right? That's not something you could just easily do. And, it, and if you do it, like, I mean, it's like refinancing a home, right? Like, yeah, you could refinance, but it's going to cost you like $15,000 in fees to like shave, like, you know, yeah. a couple of basis points off your interest rate. And it's like, and it's like, well, you know, it doesn't really make sense unless you're going to live in that house for 30 years, right? Well, so, and remember that there are also latencies and times and processing and everything. When you're on chain with your asset, you go and you place that on a liquidity pool or lock it in a collateral vault. 
and you take the counterpart money right up and then you go do whatever you need, right? Uh, do you want to off-ramp the money to go buy a boat? By all means, do that. And your, uh, your collaterals are still going to be generating the yield necessary for you to pay out the loan over time. So I think the friction that we're removing is also important, although there is the UX challenge of having to deal with wallets and vaults and addresses and authorization of transactions with those hash numbers flowing through the screen. But that's going to get solved. On the other end, financial services are having a hard time to solve their latency problems as they process these things. So mortgage is something in multiple countries that we've been uh, looking through with 11FS that will need to be pretty much disrupted and rebuilt from the ground up because right now the experience mm -hmm. of owning a house is almost as punitive as not being able to pay for the house itself. So it's really dreadful. What do you mean by that? It means that the experience of contracting a mortgage is very punitive to the user. So if you're having access to tokens and you're actually using those tokens to do something else, um, it's already a much more compelling reason to go do that on a tokenized basis than it is to do that on a banking uh, app of some kind that will require you 65 days to even you know be heard by someone. Got it. Got it. So just, just the lanes the process of actually like going through all of the, like the contracts yeah. and the agreements and the, just the latent. Yeah. Maybe. And by the time that 65 day period, you know, maybe, maybe interest yeah. rates are like much higher and you don't have any interest in buying that home anymore. Right. Or it, yeah. Like, and you don't know what, you don't know the rate you're actually going to get, or you don't know what <laughs> the market's going to be like in six months or two months or whatever. Exactly. And more than that, I mean, banks will, they will stall you the longer they can to, before they disperse the money. And by the time the money hits your account so you can go and buy whatever, or they hit the, 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 the seller's account, the interest, is, the interest are going to be running. And depending on the contract, they're going to be running even from the, the, the start date of your contract, which could be up to 90 days before the disbursement happens. So that is hmm. also something that plays a lot in favor of traditional finance that with blockchains everything is on the spot like bang 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 you're, right you, you you have you only you're you only have interest counting against you the moment you get the money and you get the money exactly the moment you put on your collateral so those latencies right. are much much shorter again although the rest of the ux sucks still <laughs> <laughs> right but but your point is basically that that there's a lot of all of these inefficiencies in the the kind of traditional like a mortgage system Essentially, the consumer has to end up bearing the risk of all these things. Of like, yeah. when is actually get, when when are the funds actually going to disperse? When is this going to be approved? Like, what's the rate going to be? You know, on the day that I'm actually approved for this, or yeah, and when does the interest start? A lot of these things, like the, the consumer has to end up bearing the risk for all that stuff. Yeah, and and most of us are not equipped to deal with the complexities of that process. So, again, uh, the simpler we can make it, the better, and uh, that's why. I, uh, we here at Eleven Fest are working a lot in how to redesign the mortgage experience from the bottom up. It's super interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd love to to chat about this more as things kind of progress because this this is an area I get pretty interested in. Like you know, it's, it's the elusive <laughs> search for like real world use cases. You know, blockchain, yeah. right? Um, yeah, the you know. the thing is, I mean, it's all about the data, right? The more the more yeah. uh, the less data you need to provide a great user experience, the better the user experience is going to be. The problem yeah. is we're so now so used to giving away all of our data all the time. And the data 
is used in different ways. They have different data standards depending on, you know, whether it's a register office like a notary or the bank or, you know, the construction company. And, and, you know, there's a lot of efficiencies there as well that blockchains in general can help bring to the table. And when you have something that is like a Web3 wallet with the tokens, like everything is already obvious. It's already you know, registered and you don't have to give away every piece of data you potentially have about yourself when doing that. So we're, we're still, mm. we're still playing, you know, where the balance is uh, in, in that space. But I, I feel that is also part uh, right now is part of the problem and it will be also part of the solution. Sure. Sure. Let's switch gears here a little bit and chat about, um, you know, some of the regulatory situation that's unfolding in crypto. It's kind of the talk of the town right now. Um, you know, it seems like the hammer is, is falling essentially on the industry. Um, but we're still here. Like things are still, you know, the prices are hold, maintaining, I guess, uh, slightly going up, I guess. Um, what is your, kind of, I mean, we're recording this in mid-February. I mean, we've, we've just had some of the news out of the SEC this week. And, and we've just, you know, there's word that Binance is about to get hit with a big settlement. Um, and what's your sort of read into what's going on here? Uh, I know you guys have been doing quite a bit of work on this as well as you've been talking about it quite a bit on your podcast. So we'd love to get your, your thoughts here. Yeah, I think, you know, there's different styles of uh, regulation or regulatory approach. Uh, what we have here in the UK is regulation by principle. So if your product works under the principle of the law and you're doing like innovative things, it's probably not going to be hit with a big dismissal or a big fine or whatever the case may be. But if you break the law, it will come up on you. Right. Um, but there's, there's a lot of space for innovation uh, provided by at least in financial services uh, by the bank of England and the FCA, the financial conduct authority. Um, it's not by chance that these are the regulators, the regulators that inspire most of the regulators around the world. In the U.S., it's a little bit different. What we're seeing is regulation by enforcement uh, because in the U.S., most of the regulators want to regulate every possible use case, which is very hard to do. So if it resembles something that is not being regulated, it will be accounted for as a uh, potential uh, you know, uh, infringement of the law. What we're seeing in the case of Binance, and, and that is... You know, I'm going to talk particularly about the uh, BUSD uh, case that uh, came forth uh, in the last few days uh, with what I know. And I know that more information is going to come out after we have this conversation uh, is that Paxos was issuing BUSD that was actually pegged to the dollar. And then there was a Binance BUSD being issued pegged to that BUSD. So it was actually a, a leverage on the pegging. Uh, which then is being considered as a security. Well, the problem is it could be considered a derivative for sure because it's pegged to a peg, but a security? I mean, there's no expectation of return on something that's supposed to be stable. So right. it's really hard for me to grasp the actual logic behind the, 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 the hammer falling that hard. Um, but because we had such a messy 2022 I think every regulator in the world will be overzealous to things that appear to be a problem. Now, we can talk all the day about this, but we're seeing the SEC come harder and harder on crypto because most of the nature of crypto at they stand now 
resembles something that they would acknowledge under the Howey test. It was the same case with Kraken last week, where they said, well, if you're offering a service that is a collective investment that is aiming to provide returns, that is a security you haven't registered. You have to shut it down. I'm going to you know, fine you on like $30, $40 million. Now, Jesse, uh, Kraken Sounder, went to Twitter and said, well, if I knew it was just a form to be filled, I would have re registered. But that wasn't shared with us. That's why I think regulatory clarity on things that are brand new, like staking, should be discussed and put in place because I feel that will give the uh, providers a lot of clarity to what they're doing and how they should operate, whether registered or not. And to regulators to actually go and focus on some things that are really, really bad, like there's still space for us to do home staking, right? If I do that, you know, on my computer and my house, will this still be considered a security because I'm just renting my computer to the network and being paid for a service that I'm helping the network to execute. Is this still a security under the Howey test? Is it not? If I do that on a pooling automation basis that's decentralized, would that then be a security that's being operated by a decentralized entity, say Lido or Rocket Pool? Yes, no. What is the space there that we're operating mm. in? So I'm mostly in favor of same product, same rules. That leads the space that leaves the space for the regulator to actually go and regulate what is incremental to existing products. But staking is almost all new. So what is it? Is it a real security? Or is people just renting computer space that they've rented to get rewarded by a service that they're providing to secure the network? So I think there's a lot of discussion there that needs to be kind of flashed out that punishing players while the discussion doesn't happen is, in my opinion, jumping the gun. I fully appreciate that Gary's not doing that because he's evil, because he's, you know, he's on a, a dungeon somewhere with a, you know, a trident poking people. That's not what's happening. There is certainly some discussion on the uh, current administration. You know, power struggles happen everywhere. Um, and Gary wants the SEC to be increasingly more relevant and, and have increasingly more power to regulate financial services. But we can't get to a point where we're, you know, because people have cash and expect to get paid to regulate cash as a security. That's, that's, right. you know, that seems where we're headed and that is illogical. So we need to find a better way to help regulators regulate legislator to legislate, but also have the space uh, to innovate where we know is necessary. Yeah. And, and going back to the whole, like the, the BOSD, like the derivative BOSD that was pegged to the original BSD that was backed by one-to-one -one by dollars in, in, in the Paxos trust. It's, it almost, it almost feels like if, if the derivative BUSD is a security or, or if the, the peg, the BSD, the BSD that's pegged to the peg kind of, that if that's a security, then like wouldn't fractional reserve banking dollars that are issued by banks, like wouldn't those also be security? Like, it just, I don't know, like, like this, this, some of this stuff is just very head scratching, right? And it, it feels like, I mean, I have no like in, insight and knowledge or anything, but it feels like they're kind of reaching for stuff here. But it does pose a lot of, I mean, maybe the benefit here is that like some of this stuff gets addressed quicker than it would have otherwise. And granted, it's probably not going to be, you know, the outcomes that some people in the industry want, but 
Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the other, that's the other thing is like people are like, Oh, we just need regulatory clarity. And you know, you could, you could counter argue and be like, look, like there basically is regulatory clarity. It's just not the kind of clarity that you want. So <laughs> that's why you're well, running that's around. That's why I that. think, yeah, <laughs> that's why if you're using logic, it's, it's a much better device than using, you know, interpretation to what is out there. Again, if it's the same product, it should operate within the same rules. So I'll give you another a counter example. We had lenders, crypto lenders last year going belly up, fighting for bankruptcy left and right because of the ripple effect of an algorithmic stablecoin, right? Um, and then we found out that underneath all of this, there was a fraudster that, were pl- that was, you know, milking digital assets as a, you know, a, 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 a TradFi uh, fraudster just with a different uh, asset class, right? Um, so all of that was existing. Lenders exist. They are called banks. They have specific regulations. Regardless of the asset you're lending and borrowing, they operate on the same basis. So if you do bank-like things with bank-like clients, with bank-like products, you should be punished with bank-like rules if you do bank-like fraud, period. And that is fine. It's It doesn't matter if your assets are running on the blockchain, if it's a natively digital asset. If you are doing the activities that resemble activities that are fully regulated, you should register and you should operate under the same risk and compliance guidelines. If you're doing is completely new, like staking, then there's more room for discussion. But if it's like a 100, 200, 300 years old industry and you just change your technology stack or you record your assets, come on, dude. Like you're asking. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like that's it's pretty obvious that like, okay, if you're just doing the same thing, but with, you know, a a different sort of underlying tech stack, then there's no reason that you should expect like different treatment. Yeah. So uh, and I think that's where something like staking gets interesting because this is you know, it's a, it's fundamentally like, it's a new thing that didn't exist before. Um, and it's, it's a, it's, you could argue that it's similar to certain things. There's, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So it's going to be, there's going to be similarities. There's going to be some type of precedent, but I'll give, is, I'll give you, I'll give you that, a, again, another counter example on the whole uh, liquid staking discussion, which was like Kraken's case. So if you rent a server at Amazon, right? And, and, and someone is building a, uh, an application on your server in Amazon and they charge someone to use that application and then they pay you to rent your server that you rented on Amazon, you're subletting a server. Will that be a security? Probably not. So that's, that's staking. It's you renting a piece of a software or, or a server that helps other people use the infrastructure and you get paid for it. Mm. So it's that's the same logic, right? That's why I feel that right. using the same logic to, to see if it's the same product would then apply to these new things. It's not the same product because it doesn't behave the same way as a security would. And it wouldn't make it even through, you know, the so-called uh, the uh, what's the Howey test, right? So I, th- I feel right. that it's, it's important to have that discussion. I might be completely wrong. Trust me, that, that's happened before. But at least we're, we're having that conversation. And, and I feel that regulators like we have here in the UK, the FCA and the Bank of England are doing consultations all the time about it, NFTs, about digital assets, about 
CBDCs. A paper just came out last week about the future of the digital pound. This is open public debate that helps society shape the future they want to live in. And this is, pro- again, probably why the UK is seen as this inspiring thing for other regulators because the way they deal with uh, innovation is really open. Mm. Mm, interesting. And one other question on this front, um, and it's really more around kind of like what happens in the US? How does that sort of, what precedence does that set for like other countries as far as um, like, okay, if, if the US SEC says that staking security or, or like this particular manner that Kraken, you know, sort of pooled funds together and offered staking services is a security, um, is that something that is other folks are going to look at and be like, okay, we'd better follow that because we don't want to get slapped on the wrist by the U S or, or like, how, like how much would the Brazilian CVM, for example, be looking at this and say, Oh, we better just go along with what, you know, the U S says, because we don't want to get in trouble or like, I guess the question, I mean, I think it went questions of money laundering and kind of bank secrecy act stuff, like where there's sanctions involved, potentially there's the U S has a much bigger hammer that it can wield against uh, other countries. But on on some of these more of like nuanced things about like what is a security, what's not security? Like how much do you think what happens in the U.S. is really influencing uh, these other countries? I know that the CVM uses a a, a local tropical Brazilian version of the hobby test for that, which is is fine. It's been working. Mango Groves. (laughs) Mango Groves test, right? (laughs) It's it's been, it's you know, if, if this has been helping define the industry for the last, I don't know, you know, since 1946, uh, it, it, it's, it's probably working, right? So um, I, I, I fully appreciate that regulators would take the hint from a U.S.-based regulator because of the geopolitical importance of the U.S. in the global economy. And I, I wouldn't think that this would be different uh, with Brazil uh, in any of the regulators. Uh, that said, I feel that the CVM is much more open to debate than SEC currently is. And and it's remarkable what the CVM's being able to actually create with the sandbox and the new guidelines and everything else, because that is the type of, the, again, that's the type of the debate that we have to have at this stage of this industry. So I think although CVM does get inspiration from the SEC, the way they are approaching the novelty in the market um, is is it's pretty much what we would expect for a regulator that's trying to foster innovation in a responsible, controlled manner. Uh, testimony to this is the CVM sandboxes, uh, which with the uh, central bank sandboxes are helping shape what the future of the crypto economy is going to look like in Brazil. So uh, yes, they will take uh, inspiration from uh, SEC, but they're doing, in my opinion, a much better work of interacting with the market, uh, with consultations, with the sandboxes. Uh, and any company at any point can just go and, and ask for a CVM consultation on what they're doing. It don't have to be on the, on the sandbox. And it will take time, but the CVM is going to say, well, yeah, this is a security. You'll need to register at you know whatever type of CVM entity. Uh, or no, we we don't think this is a security. Go do your stuff somewhere else. So I think this is the type of debate and discussion and openness that I would expect a regulator to provide to their market um, 
where we are now in crypto. Yeah, I think it's important to note that the CVM has been doing this with with pretty limited resources too. Um, yeah, they've been kind of hamstrung. Um, I mean, I guess there's never been a bureaucracy in history that didn't need more money, right? But but like in there, but it seems like they've been you know they haven't gotten any new funding, and it's been it's been several years, and there's there's staff constraints, and so they're doing this with pretty limited resources. Um, but the fact that they've been able to pull off you know some successful cohorts of the sandbox, and that there's been some like actual yeah. like real things that have emerged out of that. Yeah. Um, not really at scale, but they're things that are actually being used and, and working. And, uh, and my, quite my experience with uh, financial services regulators in various countries is that the, the, the technical body in those regulators are extremely good. Like they are really knowledgeable. They study abroad. They have a network of colleagues from every other regulator that they can tap into to debate, discuss, ideate, exchange experiences. Um, and, and the financial services regulators in Brazil are among the top in the world. So yes, it's hard to work with limited resources in, in a high demanding environment like we have now, but the caliber of the, the talent that is in both the central bank and the CVM, those are the two regulators that I know best in Brazil, uh, are on par with the top regulators in the world. Yeah, and it's an important point to make, right, is that these guys are, they're not only sort of open for discussion, but they're very sort of, I mean, these are very skilled, uh, you know, technocrats, I guess, if you want to use that word, um, people that have really put in like, put in the legwork and the homework to understanding this technology, even despite some of the, uh, you know, the, the limited resources. It's not just crypto either, right? It's, you know, around like open finance and, oh, yeah, and everything. Things, and you can go on. So, I mean, they have, they have a track record of delivering on some of this stuff. Um, and it's really, I mean, the, the financial innovation ecosystem in Brazil is just really, really blossoming because of it. Yeah. So, um, so before we wrap up here, I just wanted to get, you know, two or three things from your end that you are excited about for the rest of the year. Like, what are you, or predictions or just things that you're watching or, or things you're, you're kind of, you know, maybe hoping don't happen or what, what are you, what are you kind of looking at for the rest of this year? I'm increasingly more excited about Web3 social networks. I feel we're testing so many different models right now. Um, it's specifically one of those industries that were never regulated and became big tech, like Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Netflix, uh, Amazon, all of that. So it kind of permeates some of that space as well. Um, so yeah, Web3 socials is probably one one of the top things that I'm most interested in. Um, doing a lot of research on um, on the back of that is music NFTs. Uh, I advise on a Brazilian startup called tune traders. Um, and it's amazing how this segment on NFTs is uh, growing and reshaping how the music industry really works. You know, me being, a, a, you know, a play, I've been playing drums for, I don't know, 30 plus years, been in a band for 20 plus years, 25 plus years. Um, it's, it's really magical that we're now seeing the emergence of a new balance of power in the music industry. And I'm all, <laughs> all in favor of it. Um, and the third thing that I feel, uh, is, is, is kind of of interest is, uh, some of the, the programs that are doing composability with DeFi. Um, I can name a few like Weave Finance, Struct Finance, Nested. Uh, these are largely uh you know ux projects 
but they do that very smartly and very efficiently, and they create a lot of opportunities for newcomers in DeFi. So that is mm-hmm. another uh, thing that excites me. Uh, and last but not least, maybe a fourth one uh, is home staking. As I mentioned, I feel that for networks that are um, proof of stake, um, if we can find a way to have every house uh, staking computer, that would be great for everyone involved. Uh, and I really hope that we can achieve that kind of ultimate decentralization at some point. So, yeah, if you're building something in that space, I, I yeah, really want to talk to you about that. Oh, and Bitcoin NFTs. Uh, this came out last week <laughs> or last month. And, yeah, and can't just, forget about that. Right? Yeah, mind-blowing. Um, and maybe now, uh, you know, to the uh, dread of Bitcoin maxis, we will have, um, you know, the gens coming into uh, Bitcoin uh, and creating havoc there too. So, yeah, <laughs> love to see that happen. Yeah, the, uh, the, the the sort of the plight of Bitcoin maximalism was an interesting, unexpected theme of last year uh, of 2022. I thought, which was quite interesting. Um, and I'm because usually during during uh, the bear markets is when when kind of Bitcoin maximalism really sort of ramps up, right? Because these people, you know, you know, you 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 make a bunch of money in Bitcoin, and you go dabble in shitcoin projects, and then you make a little bit of money, and then you end up getting screwed on some of these things, and you're like, okay, this stuff's all garbage. I'm going back to Bitcoin, right? It seems like that's kind of how the, the cycle works. Uh, but but he, but this cycle has been different, right? Like oh, there's I mean, maybe it's just it's a function of just Ethereum and other. There's just not enough other stuff happening elsewhere that like. You don't need to just go back to Bitcoin. There's other things you can revert back to. Yeah. Um, well, but... it's it's that uh, I heard the expression the other day, the beaver market, because beavers build on the winter. So, <laughs> yeah, it's crypto winter, but people are actively building. And now with this ordinals, we see that there is building activity on Bitcoin mainnet, right? I, I was researching like Stacks and RSK and Lightning Network, which are kind of layered two propositions on top of Bitcoin with, with a DeFi ecosystem, with an NFT ecosystem and all that stuff. But on mainnet, I, 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 yeah, that was, that was interesting to see. So I'm really excited about seeing more utility come out of Bitcoin other than just, you know, store of value. I think if there's space for the technology to be leveraged, I just hope that this doesn't push another fork of Bitcoin somewhere because we don't need another Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. I think that those experiments have uh, largely been tried and failed at this point. Right. Um, or are they, hey, you can, I guess you can, all, you can always go pick up one of the existing forks and build on that, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. NFTs on Bitcoin cash, right. Or a Bitcoin entity or whatever. Yeah. Or anyway. maybe a, a, a BFT or Bitcoin for non-fungible tokens. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we don't need that. Don't do that people, please. Could be good marketing though. Right. Bitcoin fungible tokens. Oh, we but don't anyway. need more. We don't need more marketing. We need less marketing, more builders for sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> anyway, Magaji, it's always uh, great to chat with you. Appreciate you coming on, and uh, thank you, dude. We'll talk again soon. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Watch out. Obrigado, everyone, and thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the Brazil Crypto Report newsletter on Substack if you haven't already. And please do give the show a five-star rating on your podcast app if you enjoyed this content. We'll be back soon with another great guest.